Welcome to episode 24, and we're going to go into the story of Ruth and Orpah, and we're just excited to it share with you. It is my favorite book in the Bible. I mean, a nugget in a package, small, but Another yeah, favorite it's... book, yes. Okay, um, and I'm Farrell. And I'm Rhonda Pickering. And we're just so happy to be here. So we're just going to jump right in and take it away. And be sure to like us. That too. All right, the, the book of Ruth is actually um, in the ancient scriptures. It was compiled with it, the books of the prophets, not historically with the books of the judges, um, because this is one of the most prophetic little books in the Bible. I'm aware of that, and it's so cool the way it types and shadows the time of the Gentiles and the whole picture of coming home. Right, and so we're going to just jump right in. All right, so historically, this is still in the time of the Judges, and you remember in the book of Judges, we had six cycles, six up and down deliverances, apostasies, and judgments, and then um, and then we land on the, which would, which could technically be historically the seventh book in the in the time of the judges and that would be your happy ever after book it's going to be the story of Ruth and Boaz but it's so much more than just a a romance that is actually studied in colleges as a beautiful piece of literature even by non-religious um, classes. It, it's an amazing, structurally uh, intense book of scripture. But we want to kind of look. Shame. Yeah, we want to. We want to kind of look at it prophetically and as an allegory, because that is what it was intended to be. So before we, actually, even though it is um, a real story, right? It it really happened. It's at all true on the surface level, but there are deeper and deeper levels. Which is something we find in scripture all the time, whereas somehow the Lord orchestrates a story which exactly fits. Well, that's a type the of shadow. pattern of yeah, we'll prophetic some future. scriptures that, that show that as well. But just to get it all in context, let's remember that we just did the book of Judges, and it's important to know that Ruth takes place historically in the time in the Judges, and it's about a king, but there are no kings. In the book of Judges yet. And so it's very prophetic right out of the gate. In 2 Nephi 10, we're told that we live on a land that is a land of liberty unto the Gentiles. And that there will be no kings on our land who shall rise, raise up unto the Gentiles. And yet we're about to see in just a minute that prophetically there's going to be an attempt to raise up a king in this land. And so... Again, we're looking at this overview because this is the same overview that's happening to us. In that way, even in the book of Ruth, we're going to get down to every little detail is is prophecy. But even in the way the books fall in the Bible is prophetic in the history, telling the future. Is there a verse in Isaiah about that? That's our famous theme here. Theme verse, Isaiah 46, 10. I tell the end from from the the beginning. beginning. All right, so we have the time of the judges where there's no king. And then, of course, in 1 Samuel, we are going to see that they are going to ask for a king. And we're going to have the anointing of Saul. And in 2 Nephi 
chapter 10, verse 14, it says, For he that raises up a king, and then notice, against me, shall perish. So we want to be sensitive to the fact that, you know, just like King Saul was raised up in the end time on this land, according to the Book of Mormon, there will be an attempt for a king to be raised up. And then, of course, in the end, Saul is going to be fighting against David. And so this king that is there taught that Jacob is mentioning here in Second Nephi 10 is what it says for that he that raises up a king against me shall perish. So we're going to actually look at 2 Nephi 10 because if you look at the chiasm, it actually tells you who is trying to raise up that king just by looking at its bottom element in 2 Nephi 10. Things will get so bad in our world that the nations will one day cry out for a king to feed them and to protect them, just like they did with Saul, which is coming in the next lesson. That king will appear in the end time, and we will call him the Antichrist. But 1 Samuel doesn't end the story. It doesn't end with Saul. Because, of course, 2 Samuel is the book of God's king. David did appear on the scene, and he did and will establish the kingdom in the name of the Lord. Likewise, when man's king has done his worst, God's king will appear, judge this evil world, put away ungodliness, and establish his glorious kingdom and be sensitive to that establish because establish in Hebrew is Yachin, he who establishes. He's the second pillar in the temple. You have Boaz, which we're going to learn about, and Yachin, he, the, he who is strong and mighty and he who establishes. So Let's jump right in to 2 Nephi 10, and let's get the context right out of the gate in the first few verses. And now I, Jacob, speak unto you again, my beloved brethren, concerning this righteous branch that we have spoken of. This is the conversion of the house of Israel in the end time, the branches of Israel when they believe in Christ. For behold, the promises which we have obtained are promises to us according to the flesh. Now, if I were to name the chiasm in 2 Nephi 10, I might be tempted to name it according to the flesh. Or in the flesh. So why do you think they keep saying that over and over well, again? Well, so that we don't think that it's spiritually fulfilled without being temporally fulfilled. Right. He's, he's trying to say over and over again, I'm, I'm telling you about something that's going to happen real time, physically, in the flesh. Okay. Wherefore, as it has been shown unto me, many of our children will perish in the flesh. Did that actually happen to the descendants of Lehi? Did they perish in the flesh? Absolutely. Because of unbelief. Nevertheless, God will be merciful unto many, and our children will be restored, that they may come to that which will give them the true knowledge of their Redeemer. So I would say that nationwide, the descendants of Levi, Lehi have not come to a true knowledge of their Redeemer. And the same with the Jews. There, there's a, it's all starting. There's these, there's these movements and, these, and, and, and it gets so exciting because we know that we're on the threshold of big prophecies 
being fulfilled. All the pieces are moving into position. Yeah, the stage is being set. But still, as a people, as a nation, they have not come to the true knowledge of their Redeemer yet. And we know that because there's things that happen prophetically when they do. All right, so let's look at the next verse, and we can see that verses 7 through 19 are a chiasm in 2 Nephi chapter 10. And remember that um, just for our, our viewers out there, when you have a chiasm, where do you find the title? In, in the extremities. Right, the first and the last element is what I always tell the kids, okay? So we're going to call this one, When Israel Believes in Christ in the Flesh for real, and they res are restored to the lands of their inheritance. So in the and old... That's big. Yeah. In the old world, have the Jews been restored to the lands of their inheritances that were promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob from the Euphrates to the Nile? Obviously not. And yeah. They, they don't Only even have part. control over Temple Mount, really. Yes. And then um, in the bottom element down there, it says... And just by the way as well, do we, have we received the lands of inheritance in Jackson County yet? Have the descendants of Lehi been restored to the lands of their inheritance on this land? Not at all. Yet. Not yet. Not in the flesh. Absolutely. Okay, so just for fun, um, count up how many <clears throat> times in this chiasm you see in the flesh. We, got, we already had two in the first few verses. Now in the chiasm, can you can you see the in the fleshes? I tried to underline them for you so you can pick them out. Just give you me a second. You want me to do that real quick? Well, I'm giving them a second. How about four? <laughs> four is good guess. It's three. I just there you go, flashing in the flesh. Now that would have made it easy. Yeah, I know. I should have flashed them first, right? Okay, so I just want you to see that Jacob is being super emphatic that this will happen in the flesh here in this land. Meaning right. it's not allegorical. It's not allegorical, okay? And because this isn't our topic of study today, we're not going to go through the whole chiasm, but I did tell you that you can see who is fighting against Zion. So just for really quickly, go down to the orange little arrow pointing down. That's element E. And then look at the one that is pointing up. It says, he that fighteth against Zion shall perish in verse 13. And it says, he that fighteth against Zion shall perish, and they are the whore of the earth, in verse 10. That's a big clue. <laughs> and uh, then we're, that meaning the whore being Babylon, of course. And then if you look at F, it says, he that raises up a king against me shall perish. And who is doing it? In the bottom element F, God destroys secret works of darkness and of murders you know and I of abominations. There are secret combinations that are going to try to put a Whoa. king or a ruler that, that goes uh, outside of our government system in the end time. And I see seeds of that. I would put that in context of our putting in a king. Yeah, this yeah. is in process. That, this, that, is not, this is not future tense. <laughs> this is happening in technicolor. Exactly. exactly. So <laughs> let's go right to the heart of this chiasm that Jacob is giving us. And remember that this, the theme of this chiasm, as it was stated in the, the top and the bottom element there, is that this is when Israel will believe in Christ and be restored to the lands of their inheritance in the flesh. Okay? And the center is, I, the Lord, will be their king. 
a light unto them forever that hear my words, that my covenants may be fulfilled unto the children of men while they are in the flesh. So, so in, in essence, we got beautiful times to look forward to after a little turmoil. Yeah, they're going to try and establish a bad king, and then the, the true king is going to be installed. And we're seeing this all in the books of Ruth and 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. So we brought in the Book of Mormon so that you can see that it's in our scriptures. And I love this. I had to throw this one in here. This is this is a bunny trail. Here we go. The, bear, <laughs> the rabbit trail. The next chapter in 2 Nephi, chapter 11, is where he says, I got to tell you about Isaiah because this is our topic. And the prophet that wrote all about the restoration of the house of Israel when they come to believe in Christ and are restored to the lands of their inheritance, that prophet is Isaiah. And you can see that chapter 11, again, is another chiasm. Just for the sake of time, I zoom right to the middle of the chiasm. And it says, My soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. For for this end hath the law of Moses been given, and all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the world unto man are typifying of him. So all things are types of Christ. Why is this important as we study the book of Ruth? The entire thing is typing, is typing the second coming of Christ. In Hosea chapter 12, it says, I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions, and I have used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. So again, the book of Ruth is classified in the Jewish organization of, of the Bible with the prophets, not with history. So let's go in to the book of Ruth. Ruth, you've probably seen on the top of your screen, is read every Shavuot. Shavuot, you have your three feasts that are about the first coming, your three feasts about the second coming. The one in the center is Shavuot. It is the only feast where unleavened, where unleavened bread is, is not eaten. They, eat, they, they have leavened bread on the Feast of Pentecost or Shavuot. Well, they actually present two loaves. Right, two huge loaves, all right? So, so there's a which, big harvest here so, yeah, related two to... days of the Gentiles. Yeah, and 2,000 years that the gospel would go to the nations because of the atonement of Christ. It, 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 they could receive the gospel without being condemned by the law because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. So everything that we just said is all over the book of Ruth. So we'll jump in chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass, when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, and they, they specify Bethlehem, Judah, because there was another Bethlehem city in the north, and so that just means the Bethlehem that you're familiar with, just a few miles south of Jerusalem, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. So the family, a certain man, he's going to be a type of somebody. They're going to go out of their land to the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So right out of the gate, we know that a famine is a covenant curse, right? 
And in this time period, we are going to remember that before this time of the Gentiles began, that Israel had to reject Jesus Christ. And because of that, because they plotted to kill him, he cursed the fig tree, which is a symbol of Israel politically. Okay? And so this is the time when there's famine in the land. And because of the famine in the land, they're going to be exiled it's from in, their land. It's interesting that when Israel was kicked out of the land in 70 AD, that the Romans actually salted everything. Yeah. So that it created it a famine. It created a famine. Absolutely yes. created yes. a famine in the land. And, and we could do a whole study on famines in the scriptures. But what we want to bring out right here is that the fact that they are going to Moab is not a good thing. Because in Deuteronomy in chapter 23, it says that an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. So we have specific protocols against Moab and against Ammon. And of course, we know um, a lot of those reasons because, you know, King, King Balak tried to hire Balaam to curse Israel. And then, you know, it, it even says that in verse 5. It says, nevertheless, the Lord thy God would not hearken unto Balaam, but the Lord thy God turned the curse into a blessing because the Lord thy God loved thee. Thou shalt not seek their peace nor their prosperity all thy days forever so they're going to moab <laughs> okay a confusing almost. all right However. and then right out of the gate um i'm going to mention verse 2 in deuteronomy 23 because this is going to come into play later as well also notice it's very interesting that a bastard or someone who technically is born without a father actually like moab and Ammon were, even though Lot was a father, it was an ancestral relationship, and so they, they were technically bastards. A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. So what's up with the 10th generation? What's up with the prohibition against... Okay, we're going to get into all of that, now that we've got a little bit of the background on that. Another little piece of background that we need to have is that the fields of Ruth and Boaz are in Bethlehem. Remember it said that right in, in the very first, that they were in Bethlehem, Judah. We'll, we'll go into it a little bit more later, but just understand when, when you imagine that David, who is going to be born from the lineage of Ruth, when David is born, he is born in the fields of Bethlehem. And there is someone else who will be born in Bethlehem of the lineage of David. So this story is going to establish why Jesus was born in Bethlehem and why David was anointed there. All right, so every single detail in the story has meaning. So let's first take a look at the names because right out of the gate you says, and his name was, and her name was, and you get this big focus on the names like they mean something. <clears throat> so we, are learn, we learn that that certain man that left and went to Moab or was exiled from his land was Elimelech. And Elimelech means God is my king. So he could kind of represent the priesthood or the, or, or the leadership of Israel. God is my king. So 
they shouldn't be out there in Moab in the first place. But what is interesting is that his name means God is my king, and we're still in the time of the judges. There are no kings. All right, so the word Naomi means pleasant. And so Naomi in our allegory here is going to be a type of Israel. She's going to be sent out from her land, and in the end she's going to come back home to Israel. Okay? And then she has two sons that go with her in this exile. And, and I'm calling it exile not because they didn't choose to go out, but because it is an allegory of the exile. And these names, sometimes names in Israel are um, a little confusing until you realize it's, it, that we've talked about this before, that sometimes the names are descriptive of what their role is. It's kind of like stands with a fist in... In the Indians, in, in right? In the Indians or some of those different names where the name actually even describes them, which is kind of sad because these guys don't get really good names. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, one of them is Milan, and one of them is Hillian. And they mean unhealthy to blot out puny and to perish. Yeah, so in, you know, can you imagine being stuck with that handle? I know. I naming their child that. Um, yeah. You know, and I think sometimes perhaps these names became like the Indians, where they were given those names. Right. Did figuratively. Did they, did they get after? Well, perhaps, the, yeah. These, these names actually... I've speculated they, that. Even yeah. these, these names have actually been found on records for this time period. They weren't that uncommon names. But I just can't imagine, you know, can you imagine naming your son Mahan? Like, like, pick me, pick me, I want to be on your team. Yeah, come on over here, unhealthy, blotted out. <laughs> be on my team, you know. That'd be a Yeah, that's what I say. It's really hard to... Hard to no, but I, uh, maybe it was a added name. But, of course, the reason that their names are thus is because when they're in exile, out of their promised lands, they can't flourish. Okay? All right, so Naomi's daughter-in-laws have meaningful names as well. Orpah means fawn. Now, that can mean graceful, graceful yeah. and everything, but we also have to remember that in our... In the temple in ancient Israel, a fawn or a deer is not an unclean animal. But it's not a temple. But it's not, it's not an animal that could be offered in the temple either because it's a wild animal. And we learn all through the book of Isaiah that wild animals represent the non-ethnic lineages of Israel, the Gentiles, the, the, those people from the nations. And then, of course, Ruth in our story is going to mean desirable or friend, friend, friend of Naomi, friend of Israel. So she's going to represent our church, our people who believe in Christ during the time of the Gentiles. So the names are just packed with meaning right out of the gate. And then in verse 6 in chapter 1, it says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return to the country, from the country of Moab. And then this is so fascinating. It doesn't say, because the famine was over, right? It says, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread, bread from heaven, I would assume in here. Well, usually it 
becomes hand in hand almost. Right, and and don't Lessons forget come with, don't forget the word pun in here that Bethlehem is the city of bread. It's the house of bread. House of bread. Right, and so this book is full of literary uh, techniques that are 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 just flooded with it. That's why it studies it, but it's people study it. But that the reason I this is so important. Like you've got to remember. It doesn't say, and the famine ended, it says how that the Lord had visited his people. So at this time of Israel's return, the end time restoration of the house of Israel in the flesh, do we have a type of this in the Book of Mormon? So let's go to Alma 19. Let's go to Ammon and the conversion of King Lamoni because this is just littered with word links and clues just like the book of Ruth is okay and it says and he Ammon said to the queen he is not dead but he sleepeth in God so you remember the story that he that King Lamoni got overcome with the spirit and bam he you know just it's funny in in the book of Mormon here because you know whenever the spirit is can you just imagine this in sacrament meeting (laughs) but boom he's out Uh, Three days. A couple of days. Don't worry. Haul him off to the emergency room. (laughs) And he said unto the queen, He is not dead, but he sleepeth in God. And on the morrow he shall rise again. So if you followed on our website or anything, you know that on the morrow is a very important key phrase for the Feast of First Fruits or the resurrection. Okay? Jesus was resurrected on the morrow after the Sabbath. And those words are very technical and legal. They define the Feast of First Fruits. Therefore bury him not. And Ammon said unto her, Believest thou this? And she said unto him, I have no witness save thy word and the word of our, thy, our servants. Nevertheless, I believe. And so then Ammon is going to say unto her, Blessed art thou because of thy exceeding faith. So again, remember that this time of the restoration of the lands of inheritance in the flesh, that we just read in 2 Nephi 10, is when they believe. And so you see uh, the queen believing. And the king obviously was overcome with the spirit there. And it came to pass that she watched over the bed of her husband, from that time, even until that time on the morrow, again, which we're Ammon emphasizing, which, is which Ammon had appointed an appointed time mm-hmm. on the morrow. Maybe the Feast of First Fruits, which is a resurrection, that he should rise. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So type and shadow. Yeah, and, and you're on gonna, the third day. Yeah, you're gonna see this all over the Book of Ruth. You see it all over the Book of Mormon when you learn to catch these key phrases. Now, as we talk about this time and when, when the Lamanites are converted and typed in similitudes in the Book of Mormon, I want to really quickly just jump over to Ether 4 because also at this time period, this is the time period when the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon comes forth. That's part of their conversion process in the Book of Mormon. And it says that they shall not go forth unto the Gentiles, meaning the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon, until the day that they repent. So what is it that we need to repent of? Well, well, no, 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 it's not us. It's those other guys, right? They're the ones that need to repent of. Not me. Always. Okay. And so then it says, um, and in that day that they exercise faith in me like the queen did, 
like the brother of Jared did. Oh my goodness, we could bring in a whole lot of parallels with that. It says, then will I manifest unto them the things which the brother of Jared saw. I don't want to go on too much of a rabbit trail here, but when you say faith exercise in me, we're saying faith in the Lord. Yeah. And I love the concept that what are we having faith in? The answer is his atonement. Yes. We go to him in humility and we have faith in the atonement that he is the healer. Right, and of that our, souls. our faith is in him, and you're gonna see that on the next slide. Thank you for emphasizing that. And then it says, even to the unfolding unto them all my revelations, saith Jesus Christ. But wait a minute, I thought we had the fullness of the gospel. I thought we understood it all. Uh, that's just us. <laughs> no, I'm totally. <laughs> so there is so much that is Meaning, going to be revealed to sometimes us. Sometimes we go back to Ephraim and our arrogance. Right, uh, Isaiah 28. Woe to the crown of pride, pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, junk not with wine, but with pride. Okay? And so at this time period, the revelations will be unfolded. And I love that word throughout Scripture because it is, it is a dimensional word. Like when the clouds of heaven roll back like a scroll and yes. things are unfolded and we see more and deeper. and It's, it's like that five minutes on the mountain that Joseph Smith talked about. And I'm always like, ah, oh, I just need five minutes on top of the mountain, you know, where you can learn more than reading all the libraries of the world in five minutes. There's Being another key to, in there. You've got to be quickened. Yeah, that'll be good, too. All right, so we're going to go back to the story in Alma 19 and back to King Lamoni. And it came to pass that he arose according to the words of Ammon. And as he arose, he stretched forth his hand unto the woman and said, Blessed be the name of God. Now, you remember it said that when the famine was over, how did it say it? It said, and she heard that the, that the Redeemer was back in the land and... This is what King Lamoni said, For as sure as thou livest, behold, I have seen my Redeemer. What a day. All right, so that's our type in the Book of Mormon. One more Book of Mormon, one, and then we're going to have to get right back into the Book of Ruth. I'm just trying to get you to see right out of the gate how applicable and important all of this is to us. In 2 Nephi 25, it says, And after they have been scattered, meaning the descendants of Lehi, I would say, um, the Native Americans. <coughs> After they had been scattered and the Lord God had scourged them by other nations for the space of many generations, yea, even down from generation to generation until they shall be persuaded to believe in Christ. You now we're getting back to the, to the title of that chiasm there. The Son of God and the Atonement. That's what the focus is, which is infinite for all mankind. And actually, you're going to see that, that the atonement is for all mankind just in the lineage of Boaz and King David. Because there's going to be some women in there with some tawdry history. But Christ is going to redeem all of them, all of those generations. And when that day shall come that they shall believe in Christ and worship the Father in his name, and with pure hearts and clean hands, and not 
look forward anymore for another Messiah. Who is still waiting for the Messiah? The Jews. That's, that's pretty easy. That, that's our brothers, the Jews. Then at that time, the day will come that it must needs be expedient that they will believe these things. And the Lord will set his hand again the second time. So this whole restoration of the house of Israel in the flesh, when they believe in Christ and receive the land of their inheritance in the flesh, is when the Lord sets his hand the second time. That's how he does it. That's how it all happens. That's the grand finale. Wherefore, he will proceed to do a marvelous work and a wonder among the children of men. And we could go for two hours on the marvelous work and the wonder. It's actually a literary structure that Nephi does. And it is class, it's Isaiah class 26 on our website. If you want to see the prophecies about how this hand and how this arm of the Lord is revealed and how this marvelous work and a wonder, which the Book of Mormon began 200 years ago, but it's still, the promises have not been fulfilled in the flesh. We still don't have the sealed portions of the Book of Mormon. The grand finale is on the stage. All right, so let's go back to Ruth chapter 1. And we are, you know that, of course, Naomi tries to persuade Orpah and Ruth to stay in Moab. And she does this for several reasons. Number one, no Moabite is supposed to be in the congregation of Israel, right? And you might not receive the warmest of Yeah, the this is just going to be rough, okay? But it's also because before the coming of Je the first coming of Jesus Christ, Israel was not a proselyting nation. You you can see in um, Matthew chapter ten that the Jesus tells the disciples, "You are not to go out and preach to the Gentiles." Only to the lost sheep of Israel. the house of Israel. And so it was actually forbidden in Torah to go out. And if someone wanted to come in and be numbered among the nation of Israel, they actually to this day are required to try and get them not to three times. Okay, I'm going to... And it's because, they, it's because of the Sinai Covenant. They realize if they bring people into the nation and they are sinners and they don't keep the covenant, they could lose the battle. You know, the, it affects they, their, their nation as a whole under the Sinai covenant. And that is why in the New Testament, they're freaking out when Jesus is having dinner with the sinners and that, stuff. What are you doing? That may tie into a little bit why they wanted a king. Because they wanted to be not necessarily judged to a man. Right, and we're going to see that. As a matter of fact, when you get to a point where the nation in general is not worthy to a man, you have to establish a divinic covenant. You have to set, set up a king that can save the nation or condemn the nation. And the odds aren't good, according to the Book of Mormon, what kind of king you're going to get. But the king, a righteous king, does have the power to save the nation when you don't have a situation where they're righteous to a man. Right. 
Okay, so in at this point when Ruth, and you, I'll leave it to you to go count how many times Naomi argues that they shouldn't come with her. It's, it's three. You can find them. Orpah goes back off the pages of Scripture, and we don't hear about Orpah anymore. But Ruth, on the other hand, cleaves to Naomi. And, of course, that means to stick like glue. That's a literal translation of that word, debak. The very same cause that induced Orpah to return home causes Ruth to stay. Because one of the arguments Naomi gives them is that she won't have a husband, she won't have sons, so that they can marry her sons and save the family and raise up people in the family. And that's one of the reasons that she tells them that they should go and go back to Moab and, and get husbands and then they can have a family but, but that actually works against her with Ruth because Ruth wants to come and help her right Ruth knows that she's going to be alone she's not going to have a son she's a widow and she needed someone to take care of her and Ruth is going to well we'll quote it in just a minute but I want you to notice at this point that Ruth is going to represent the believers in Christ those in the time of the Gentiles who believe the scriptures, believe what Israel was founded on in the Bible, and they want to be numbered with Israel. But it's not going to be easy. It could be tough. Wherefore, in Ether chapter 12, Moroni pauses the dialogue, and he prays for the Gentiles, and he says, Wherefore, I know by this thing which thou hast said, that if the Gentiles have not charity because of our weakness, that thou wilt prove them and take away their talent, yea, even that which they have received, and give it unto those who will receive more abundantly. So it came to pass. Can you just see Moroni pleading to the Lord that in the end time, the Gentiles, the Ruths of the world, will have grace from God that they might have charity on his people. And so I'm afraid, and I tell this to my classes, that we think it's about us and about us being saved, but the reason that we receive the blessings and the grace and the atonement of Christ is so that we can help others. And you're going to see that in spades when we take a look at the ten generations thing at the end. Now, this is kind of interesting. This is, this is a part of our big typological allegory. I just think it's very interesting because it's in the Talmud, and they actually explain what happens to Orpah. We just don't have any more about her. But in the, tor in the Talmud, it says that upon leaving Naomi, Orpah ran into a battalion of 100 soldiers. She willingly submitted herself to them because she didn't have a husband. She wanted to have children. And so this is going to be very similar to Tamar way back in Genesis 38. And we're going to talk about that at the end because the story of Ruth is actually going to refer to that story. From the lot of them, she became pregnant and bore the giant Goliath, whom the young David would later meet in battle. <clears throat> and instead of becoming a spiritual giant, Orpah became the mother of physical giants. Second Samuel 21 describes how she eventually bore four giants, all of whom were slain by King David and his men. 
Orpah's arch nemesis was Ruth, the one who did hold on and who turned her commitment to achieve into a lifetime of greatness. Ruth became a mother in Israel, great-great-grandmother to the spiritual giant David, and Goliath fell to David in battle, in what was in essence a battle between two worldviews, a physical and a spiritual. And so remember in the text, it actually says that Orpah went back to her gods, to her pagan gods. So Naomi returns, the end of chapter 1, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest. Guys, we, we, we've only gotten to chapter 1, and already mm -hmm. this is so rich with prophetic imagery here, even down to the barley harvest. So if, if we're to take our allegory and play it out, which we're going to do the, through all four chapters of the book of Ruth, you're going to see that this is the time of the restoration of the house of Israel. This is when Israel returns and believes. And notice that Israel takes with her her Gentile daughter-in-law, Ruth, her faithful Ruth. And it's the beginning of the barley harvest. When we saw where Daniel's numbers pointed to, and Pharaoh said, it's first fruits after Passover. And I, I, did, I thought, wow, that's strange to me because on the agricultural calendar of prophecy, the end of the time of the Gentiles is a Shavuot or Pentecost imagery. It's a wheat harvest. And so it was odd to me that it would be a Passover barley harvest right event. there, event in the middle at Adam and Diana. And then after 50 days, then it comes to Shavuot. And we have the sending out at Pentecost of the missionaries to the world and at Adam and Diamond, the sending out of the 144,000 to save the world. And um, we're actually, for those of you, you can see videos about Adam and Diamond, about Daniel's and his numbers on our website, but um, we're also writing a book right now. We're trying to make it just a, a small little paperback so they'll be easy to read and uh, hopefully we'll be able to get that out in the next few months on that. But in, in, for more information on all of this, we absolutely can't get into it in depth. In the Come Follow Me, we have so much to cover, but please go to the website. We even have a class on the Book of Ruth there, if you want to review this um, on the website there. It's under the class about the fairy tale, because this, um, this faithful at home, and then exile abroad, and then return in a happy homecoming, is actually the structure of our modern fairy tale as well. And it's the story of the entire book of Isaiah. All right, so Ruth tells her when she sticks like glue, go ahead and read the, the sevenfold promise that she made. For whether thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people. And this is the big one. And thy God, my God. That's the most powerful part of the covenant. And thy people being my people, <clears throat> thy God, my God, being I, I'm your God and you're my people is the Sinai covenant right there in the center of the <coughs> sevenfold promise. Where thou diest, I will die, 
and there I will be buried, and the Lord's do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. And that's probably the, the most famous verse in the book of Ruth. But when you realize what that means typologically in the future, that is Ruth the kings being and the queens church. of the Gentiles. Yeah, this is Isaiah 49, <coughs> when the kings and the queens of the Gentiles go out and bring the knowledge of Jesus Christ to the house of Israel, those that have not believed yet. So we move into chapter 2. And Naomi had a kinsman. We're still setting the stage here. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. Now it's really important to remember as we go through this allegory that the mighty man of wealth, the kinsman redeemer, is a relative of Elimelech. Okay, so Ruth's going to marry him. But Based on remember, is Elimelech means God is my king. Right? I'm just say based on the Leverite law, it's probably a brother, right? Of right. Amulet, right? Amulet. And we'll we'll talk about the Leverite law in just a, in just a minute. And in verse five, then said, and it's really fun. You just got to go through all the verses, and 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 when you realize that Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer, and we're Ruth, and you start looking at the imagery of everything that. Boaz does for Ruth the gifts that he gives her. He invites her to a meal that he offers to her with his hand. I mean, think of the sacrament table. Think of the imagery is so rich here. Then said Boaz unto his servant, who was over the reapers, whose damsel is this? And I just love this because we talked about this before. You notice we don't know the name of the servant. And we notice that there's a servant who is introducing Ruth to Boaz here, an unnamed servant. Which is beautiful. Which is beautiful because the Holy Spirit it, being the, the unnamed right spirit. there because it in but going back right, to Genesis 22 and 24 in the Akedah or the offering of Isaac, we we have the two young men, and they're unnamed there. And then we have that Isaac was offered on the third day. And there's just all these little word links in there. But then when Abraham sends Isaac, I mean, sends his servant to find a bride for Isaac, think typologically that Isaac is a symbol of Christ. So he's getting a bride for Christ. Who does he send? An unnamed servant. Now, if we do our homework, we can find out the name of the servant that Abraham sent to find Rebekah. And it was Eleazar. But do you know what Eleazar means? Comforter. The comforter. So these unnamed servants are a type of the Holy Spirit. And during the time of the Gentiles, it's the Holy Spirit that ministers among the nations and brings Jesus' bride to him, brings the believers in Christ to him through the Spirit. And now... We can go back. Um, this is a pretty amazing verse because it, it, it has some hidden things involved in it. You have to remember when you're reading 1 John chapter 16 that John was at the cross. John saw what happened when Jesus was crucified and they threw the spear in his side and out poured water and blood. And John is testifying as a first-hand witness. But what he testified is that in the earth... There is a testimony of the Spirit and the water 
and the blood. Okay, right. that's in First John. But in John 16, it says that, Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So again, we have a not speaking of himself, an unnamed servant. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. So there's your verse in John that, that, that gives us the reason why he is an unnamed servant. And of course, we already saw that in Ruth. Again, it's an unnamed servant that introduces Ruth to Boaz. All right, moving on in chapter 2, there's just a, a particular verse that, as, as you understand the typology here and you read through the, through the verses, everything becomes so meaningful. And I remember the first time I read verse 16, that you know you've got Boaz and he's and now that she believe that, that that she's come into into coming to know who he is she's receiving from him kindness and she's receiving from him protection and i just love it when it says that he tells his servants to leave for her handfuls of grain on purpose just you know angels in heaven would you just leave them some blessings leave them handfuls on purpose as we come to our redeemer and leave them that she may glean them and rebuke her not now Naomi is a good Jewish mother so she's gonna know that something's up here that there's little <laughs> things going on outside of the normal gleaning practices and she's going to say to There's a little special favoritism going yeah, on. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and it's going to be a flag for her. And, and she said, Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath not left off his kindness, listen here, to the living and the dead. This is going to become important. You're going to see this phrase a lot in regards to Ruth, that through her marriage to Boaz, it blesses the living and the debt. It redeems. Do you see 128? Yeah. I mean, this gets so exciting, okay? Where, where the Lord reveals to the prophet Joseph Smith, baptism for the dead. And Naomi said unto her, the man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinmen. So Naomi's excited she gets it. Okay, so notice here that Ruth's kind of having to get coached by Naomi what's going on. Because Ruth is from Moab. She's a Gentile. She doesn't understand the law of Moses and what's going down. But Naomi can tell her. So us being identified with the Gentiles. DNC 109 verse 60. Right. This is our coach. Yeah. The scriptures. This book of Ruth is about us. Yeah. This is our coach so that we might understand. And Boaz is our redeemer. Jesus Christ. And when you start to see, and Naomi is Israel. And when you start to see all this play out, you're just like, ah! okay. okay. So she, Ruth, kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. The wheat harvest representing the time of the Gentiles. And she dwelt Well, figuratively, we know that the barley harvest in type and shadow is the first coming of the Christ. first coming of Christ and the wheat harvest 
as at the end of the time of the Gentiles. Right, as we're getting ready for that final grape harvest and all the fall feasts of the second coming of Christ. All right, so back to the law of leveret marriage. Now, just just grammar right out of the gate. Leveret marriage is not Levitical. It, it's, a lot of people mix that up. They think it's Levi. No, it's Levere. Levere means your brother, okay? So it is a law of your brother's marriage. When, when someone dies and then his brother takes his, his bride and raises up, posterity to his name and this is in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and this is uh, throughout the Bible so everyone needs to understand the law of leveret marriage he had to be a near kinsman that's hence the brother well I was thinking in the senses of uh, oh Tamar yeah t- Judah and <laughs> Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38 that. and that's why they're going to tie these two stories together okay because you have a husband that dies and then his widow is trying to marry one of his brothers to raise up posterity to his name so that his name won't be cut off in the earth. You're going to see this throughout the book of Ruth. So he has to be able to perform um, in, in whatever way, to be able to take care of them, to, um, to be able to uh, include them in his family. And then he had to be willing. It was not required. That one is going to be huge when it comes to saving Ruth. If he chose not to, the way he would symbolize this in Deuteronomy 25 is he would have to give her his shoe. And Mr. Barefootless, was that, that was his shame because he had, he had something that belonged to him and he had failed to do his kinsman's part. Now, pay attention that when Naomi tells Ruth that Boaz is your near kinsman, he also says, she says to Ruth, the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the reason we want to pay attention to that is because those are the very same words that the spies said to Rahab. The Lord deal kindly with you. And why are we throwing out this little nuance back to Jericho and Rahab here? Because after the Battle of Jericho, Rahab is going to marry Salmon. Some, some sources, there's a lot of controversy about it, but some of the sources say that Salmon was one of the two witnesses that actually went in and saved Rahab and her family. The spies. One of the spies, yeah. yeah. And so you, you have Rahab marrying a prince of Israel and their son is Boaz and what what's important about that is that we learn right out of the gate that Boaz is wealthy and he owns the fields of Bethlehem so that means that after they conquered the land of Israel and Joshua parceled out the inheritances Salmon and Rahab were given the fields fields of Bethlehem Bethlehem. and whether Joshua knew it or not, that was going to be a protected parcel of ground that would bring forth prophetic not all prophetic, yeah. not not, and we'll see how prophetic it was when we when we look at Genesis thirty-eight. But um, not not only was it prophetic, but it would bring forth King David, it would bring forth Jesus Christ, and 
that would be your connection. And here you have right in the text a throwback to Rahab, the Lord deal kindly with you. And we'll see in Matthew that both Rahab and Ruth are listed in the Savior's lineage in, in the book of Matthew. All right, another, another interesting thing in the Hebrew is that, and I love this, when Boaz tells Ruth in the field that, you know, he, he's heard of her reputation and, it, and because of her, and now think Ruth is us, Boaz is Jesus Christ. He's heard of our good, our good deeds and he wants us to come and take shelter beneath his wings. And that becomes really, really important because the word for shelter beneath his wings is kanaf. And we'll, we'll take a look at kanaf in just a couple of slides. The other thing that you want to notice as we get into the, the what you would call the climax of the story in, in Ruth chapter 3, literarily speaking, is that Ruth was told be, by Naomi, who's again coaching her in the Law of Moses, that she is to wash herself and anoint and put raiment on. And so, you know, anybody that thinks that what happened there at the thrusting floor was um, ludicrous or illegitimate, I'm looking for the right word, risque, okay, absolutely is ignoring half the things that are written in the text, okay. Ruth was a virtuous woman. Her, she was well known for her kindness and for her goodness. And if you pay attention right here in verse 3, you're going to see temple imagery. That when you are ready for a wedding, you wash and you anoint and you put on your garments and then get thee to the threshing floor. And the threshing floor has all kinds of symbolism. We're going to take a look at it in Jeremiah in just a minute because it's both a wedding imagery at the threshing floor a betrothal but it's also a judgment think of the harvest being threshed on the threshing floor well i love the way i heard it whereas they it's kind of a breezy place they use to do yes, the threshing yes. floor and they would throw the because this is up, the barley harvest and it's a the, soft grain. the heavier grain would fall close and the chaff would fall farther away and it became the judging time of the, the separation. Wheat. The, the separation of the between wheat. the chaff and the wheat, right? Yeah, yeah. it's the, the harvest. And, and then, and then those that were the owners of the field, they would sleep next to the grain to protect it that night after it was harvested. Okay, so um, they, Naomi tells him, "Wait, wait until the party's over." And and Boaz is is resting by the grain, and she gives him very specific things that she's supposed to do. And it came to pass that at midnight, okay, so you gotta tell us why it's so important that it was at midnight. Are there ever any extra details included in scripture that are superfluous or unimportant? Doesn't seem so. No. Seems like always it's connecting and when you realize that midnight is the time of Gethsemane and the atonement, that it is a great connection there for him real, taking responsibility for her. Yes. And notice that it says that at midnight he was afraid and turned himself. Whoa. That's an insight to Gethsemane that what we have to realize is that 
in our beautiful love story here, Boaz understood what it would take to redeem Ruth. Yeah. Okay. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. So let's take a look now of the skirt. Um, Naomi, one of her instructions that she gave to Ruth was that he was to, to spread the hem of his garment over her. And the Hebrew word there is, thy skirt is kanaf. Okay. There are other places in scripture as well where God spreads his skirt over Israel. Okay. It's a, it's a protection, a responsibility motif, but there's reasons for that. And sometimes the skirt is translated as wings. Okay. So remember God keep you under his wings in the, the, in Hebrew or in Judah, they have what is called a prayer shawl. And they wear the prayer shawl when they are communing with their God. And in the prayer shawls, the four corners of their prayer shawls, they have um, a cloth that's kind of overlapped over it. And it's, it's like, it's actually called the hem. So the threshing floor has a lot of symbolism that we could go through. But we'll, we'll take a look in Jeremiah chapter 51 a, a little more. Just remember that it's both a, a happiness, a betrothal, and... A judgment. But when Naomi tells Ruth to have the man spread, spread, spread his skirt over her, throughout the Bible there are other places that God actually spreads his skirt over Israel. So we know that this is in no way a risque type of a, a situation here, especially if we understand what the hem of the garment is. And Reading out of Ruth chapter 3 verse 9, that skirt, the word for skirt is kanaf. It can mean a wing, like it said, like when Boaz told her in chapter 2, may the Lord God put you under his wings. And it, it could be an extremity, an edge, a border, a corner, a shirt, a skirt, or the corner of a garment, or a hem or a border or a fringe. And so, of course, here, we are referring to the prayer shawl that the, they wore in Israel, and they're commanded in Deuteronomy. And at the corners of those prayer shawls, they actually have like a hem. It's folded over to make it extra strong on the corners because they would tie the zitzi um, on the four corners of the garments, the fringes, and those would remind them to the commandments of God would always be before their eyes. And so there was a tradition that arose around the hems or the borders of the garments that if you could touch the hem of the true messiah's garment it would be it would heal and the healing of the woman yes and so that actually comes from malachi Chapter 4, the same one that talks about the return of Elijah. And it says that, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. So that is where that tradition came from. And that's where you have that story in the New Testament where the woman with the issue of blood is going to try and touch the hem of Jesus' garment, the corner of his prayer, the corner of his prayer shawl, the kanaf. And what's also amazing right about here in this story is that, do you remember how many years she had had an issue of blood? 
kind of like a minor detail if you're not paying attention. Yeah, it's, it was 12. Yeah, now I remember. Okay, <laughs> she had been 12. And the reason that that's important is because, do you remember where Jesus was on his way to when she touched him? To heal. To heal Darius's daughter. Yeah. Who was how old? 12. 12 years old. So you're getting a literary link. They want you to link the two stories. Because as Jesus is on his way to heal Israel, the Gentiles are healed along the way. And this is such a beautiful picture of the overall picture. And why do we know that she was a Gentile? Because if she was a Jew and she had an issue of blood, she would not have even come close to trying to approach anyone. She would have been um, unclean at that point, and she wouldn't have been in the crowd. So there's just there's nuance like this all over Scripture. And so here you can see that extra reinforced corner there on the, on the hem of a prayer shawl called the kanaf. And these, the prayer shawl, these, these, um, the cloth was like wings. That was one of the translations. And so when Jesus says, how oft would I have gathered you under my, under my wings, under my protection, under my prayer shawl. Yes, it can be a hen and chicks. It's kind of a, a same kind of imagery, but this one is more covenant oriented. Okay. And so um, on Sabbath, a father in Israel will gather his children and he'll say, come, 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 come. And they will gather under his prayer shawl and he will give them a father's blessing every Sabbath. You kind of see that in Fiddler on the Roof, right? The, the Sabbath I prayer. I love that song. Yeah. May the Lord protect yeah. and defend you. <laughs> so do not misunderstand this passage in, in Ruth chapter 3. In our culture, this would seem that she's propositioning him, but there is so much more going on than that. She's not only proposing that he take her under his wings, but also all the responsibility that that would entail which is why Jesus trembled at midnight to purchase his bride. But no matter how much Boaz loved Ruth, he had to await her move. She had to have faith. She had to believe first. All right, so the kinsman redeemer, uh, she approaches her kinsman redeemer on her own initiative and here we see that Ruth is subordinating her own happiness to raise up Naomi and to redeem the land and to redeem the dead, Elimelech and his posterity. When you realize um, how old Boaz was and how old Ruth, according to the, uh, the ancient Jewish uh, literature, Boaz was 80 and Ruth was 40. And Boaz is not going to live to see the birth of Obed. So in taking that responsibility for Ruth, taking that redemptive role on, it would cost his life. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, this is in Jeremiah, this is, this is your bad side of the threshing floor, okay? For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor, 
and it is time to thresh her. In other words, the cup of her iniquity is full. It is time for the harvest. Yet a little while, and the time of her harvest shall come. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, hath devoured me. He hath crushed me. He hath made me an empty vessel, and he hath swallowed me up like a dragon. We could do all kinds of wordlings with that. He hath filled his belly with my delicacies, and he hath cast me out. So this Babylon New World Order imagery in the end time scripturally is a plundering of the people, a robbing of their resources. He's filled his belly with my delicacies, and I have been left with nothing. The violence done to me and to my flesh be upon Babylon, says the inhabitants of Zion, and my blood will be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea, or Babylon, says Jerusalem. So here again, you can see this threshing floor imagery is when the judgment is going to turn on Babylon at the time of her threshing floor. But back to Ruth in chapter 3, we have just we have more word links in here. We have tarry this night and it shall be in the morning I will perform the oath that, that I have made. And you, and you love that because throughout... Um, the prophetic imagery, you have the day of the Lord dawning and you have people coming forth in the morning of the first resurrection and, and you just start picking up all of these beautiful clues here. The verb for tarry in, in the actual Hebrew um, absolutely solidifies that this has nothing to do with an illicit relationship or anything like that. There's a different word that they would use if it was that kind of a situation. I kind of love the six measures of barley there. Oh where, yeah, good. Where where it kind of points out that the uh, that's kind of a code that you know on the seventh day is rest, and so when he gives her the six measures of barley, it is signifying that he will not rest until he's finished. Until he's finished with the redeeming process. And you love that because in the imagery of the six thousand years of the earth and the sabbath of the earth the last seven thousand years the lord is emphasizing that he will not rest until he has fulfilled all the covenants and the promises that he's made and here he's promising her that he will redeem her if right. the the near kinsman uh, relinquishes his right um Right here, when he sends her back with those grains, it's, it's interesting in, in the Hebrew, um, it, it is that he puts it all in, in her shawl, and then he establishes it on her. So in some translations of the Bible, it will say he puts it on her shoulders and everything. It, six measures is a lot. They, they, he's given her a, a lot of, um, and the reason it says measures, you know, there, there's, there's all kinds of uh, different interpretations of whether it is, um, Ephus, which is the measure of what they were to get every day of when they were gathering the manna, right? right. If those were the measures or, or what the measures are. But I think the reason it doesn't specify it because it was a symbol that Naomi would understand that he, if he gave her the six and made a promise, he would not rest until he had fulfilled the promise, the oath that he had made. All right, um, just we mentioned before that those two pillars in the temple are Boaz and Yachin, and you see them on every Masonic temple, the, the Boaz and the Yachin, and there is some amazing imagery 
that that is there having to do with Boaz being um, in in a in a lever when in a mechanical lever Boaz being the strength or the force in a lever that you put down to make the 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 lever go up and Yachin being he who establishes being the fulcrum or the the established point of of the lever why does any of this matter because there are secrets embedded in Boaz and Yachin on how Solomon built the temple and why those two pillars are there. They were part of a machine, an Egyptian machine that he had learned from the Pharaoh of Egypt. It says it in the Bible, in the text. You'll see it all um, if you look at the site that I'm going to show you. We don't have time to go into it today, but it is very worth your while to watch it. Um, if throughout our history, students of masonry have surrounded them with a host of swarming theories more intricate than the internet and more multitudinous than pomegranate seeds, it is because so many hints of ancient wisdom and secrets of symbolism are hidden in these mighty columns. And if our own studies of the matter lead us to meanings more numerous and almost conflicting, we need not worry about it, for a symbol that says but one thing is hardly a symbol at all. So if you want to have a fascinating study on the pillars of Boaz and Yachim in Solomon's Temple, you can just search online for The Great Secret of Solomon's Temple by Michael Rood, and it is a fascinating study that you can do there. All right, going on to Ruth chapter 4, Love's Reward, the, the grand finale of the book of Ruth. And when Boaz went up to the gate and sat him down there, behold, the kinsmen of whom Boaz, Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such a one! Now, that's actually... Interesting terminology. Yeah, you know, that. Uh, can, can you imagine walking down the street seeing your buddy or somebody and saying, Ho, such a one! <laughs> you know? Um, basically, it's like calling somebody Mr. Anonymous. So the book of Ruth is telling you that intentionally this nearer kinsman doesn't have a name. Okay, And that's not because he's a symbol of the, the Spirit of God. It's because it's not represented necessarily by a person. Okay, um, it's the, the scholars believe that the nearer kinsman is actually a symbol of the law of Moses. It's God's law. And you're going to see that play out in a few verses as we go on. Note also that the gate of the city was like um, the courtroom. It, it, it was where official business was transacted legally. Because Jesus Christ could not just get up to heaven and say, um, well, I've forgiven all these guys. It had to be done legally by the law of Moses according to the process of a kinsman redeemer, okay, in order for for justice not to be broken by mercy in eternity. Justice has to be recognized. So, ho such a one, and he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, that is come out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to it, advertise thee, saying, buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of the people. for And there's none to redeem it but thee, and I am after thee. 
Now, it's fascinating here because it says, and he said, I will redeem it. So here's the question. Can the law redeem the land? Hmm. Obviously not. It can. Well, no, it, it actually can redeem the land because in the year of Jubilee, I see all the land reverts to its original owner. So according to the law of Moses, there is a law of redemption for the land. Gotcha. So the, the servant can say, I will redeem the land. <clears throat> but then Boaz says, uh, what day thou buyest the field at the hand of Naomi, thou must also buy or redeem Ruth, the Moabitess. Now wait, what did the law say about a Moabitess? Don't do it. Don't do it. Be, be cursed to the tenth generation if you do. Okay? The wife of the dead. To raise up. And the reason we need to redeem Ruth is so that we can raise up the name of the dead on our ancestors. Now, just, just you know, financially, just looking at it that way, he, he basically, the redeemer uh, would, of the land, would have to invest his own money to redeem the land. And then if he married Ruth and they had a son, that meant the land that he paid for and redeemed would legally belong to Milan and the household of Elimelech. And they would be the one that would inherit the property. So there, you could argue that there would be a reason he wouldn't want to right there. But notice that's not what he says. He doesn't say, I don't want to. In verse 6, then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi by the law, thou must buy it also of Ruth, and raise up the name of the dead. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it, lest I mar my own inheritance. If he marries a Moabitess, it would mar the law that he represents. Okay, redeem it thyself, for I cannot redeem it. So metaphorically, the nearer kinsman represents the Mosaic law. To begin with, it's nameless, and the law could not redeem us. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. It is impossible to be redeemed by the law, because all the law does is show us where we've not made it. None of us is perfect. None of us can be redeemed by the law. All it does is show us how, where we're deficient. Um, I like one analogy that someone had, that if you were hanging off a cliff and the, a chain represented the Ten Commandments, and you're hanging on this chain, the law, and you know if that, if that chain breaks, you're going you're gonna to fall. It, it doesn't matter what part of the chain breaks. If you've broken the law, you're condemned. You're going to fall to your death, right. so to speak. Yep. So metaphorically, the law cannot redeem us. This is from Romans chapter 3. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law is not our redeemer, even though it was near to us. And even though it was a guide for us, it couldn't redeem us. 
Now this was the manner in the former time of Israel concerning the redemption and concerning the changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor. So this symbolized a transfer of possession. And we remember back in Deuteronomy and Genesis and Joshua that they were commanded, Abraham was commanded to walk through the land and for the length of it and the breadth of it, I'll give it to you, to you wherever you walk. Makes you wonder how long of a walk Abraham took at that point, you know. And then in Joshua, it said, Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that I have given to you. So this foot, this treading of the land was a, a land claim and of, of inheritance. And Almost a little bit like a homestead. Concept. Yes. And that's why you have the actually, petroglyphs. That's probably where it came from. Of the, yeah, it is. <laughs> actually, I wish I was trying to. I actually was looking up online and I was trying to remember there was actually a name for it in early America when you would walk out the, the ground and that would be your land. And I, I couldn't remember what the name of it was. But anyway, um, in, in Sinai, where the children of Israel were, you find all of these petroglyphs of these footprints. And it's because they were marking, they were claiming the land right. for the Lord as, as they went through. And this one we talked about in, um, in our lesson on Joshua. This is Joshua's altar. They have discovered it in the last few years. And then, can you see the footprint around it? There's, there's like a giant footprint around it. That's not just the way the photograph is taken. That's actually a wall. It's a wall built around the altar. And there are six of these. This is God at the altar claiming the land for Israel that they've discovered in Israel. Six of these. Huge, huge. These are enormous walls in the shapes of footprints. So Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of Milan, have I purchased to be my wife. Now that is not in the ideas of ancient Israel. That is not derogatory in any way. By purchasing it, purchase, another word for purchase is redeemed. I have redeemed her. She is under my protection. She has been paid, uh, her debts have been paid, and she is free. She is redeemed. To raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. Notice how throughout the book of Ruth, the redemption of the Gentiles, the redemption of Ruth, is so that she will be able to raise up the name of the dead. Remember that baptism for the dead is something that was ordained because of the atonement of Christ. And so it would have been instituted during this time of the Gentiles. Acts 20, 28. Take heed therefore unto yourself and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Good, beautiful. All right, so we see in the story of Ruth, we see a woman that was a foreigner in chapter later on in chapter two she she becomes a shippa which is a, a lower beneath a lower servant okay so we, we've now moved kind of up in rank from a foreigner to a servant 
here. And then in chapter 3, we see Ruth referred to as an ama, a maidservant, and uh, a young virgin. And then in chapter 4, she is an isha. She is a wife. So we see the church coming up to the point where we actually inherit. We're joint heirs with Christ through our marriage to Boaz. And the woman said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel, and he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee. Now remember, Naomi is Israel. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, the kings and queens of the Gentiles, is better to thee than seven sons. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became a nurse unto it. That's not a nurse as in a, a wet nurse. That is a nurse as in she took care of Obed um, and the a nanny of sorts. And the woman, her neighbors, gave it a name saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse and the father of King David. So... Really quick as we end up here, we're going to talk about the 10 generation thing. And in order to look at what's going on with the 10 generations, we have to go all the way back to Father Adam. The 10 generation thing is uh, throughout the book of Ruth, it said that she was to raise up the, the dead, her brother, okay? To raise up an inheritance for him. And we notice that in the story of Cain and Abel, you have two brothers, but the one brother kills the other brother. And then when he's called on the carpet for it, what does he say? Um, Am I my brother's keeper? And I my brother's keeper. So he takes no responsibility for his brother. Now we move ten generations later to Shem and Japheth and Ham. We have the story of Noah, ten generations after Adam. Okay, And here again, we're going to have a story of brothers. But in this story, one of the brothers name is cursed. You remember? Right. It's going to be the story of Ham, and then he is, uh, according to the apocryphal literature, he stole his father's garment, and then Shem and Japheth are going to cover him. That was in Genesis 9, when verse 23 says, But Shem and Japheth took a cloth and placed it against both their shoulders, and walking backwards covered their father's nakedness, and their faces were turned the other way. Now, this is that verse in Hebrew. And we're talking about whether or not you build up your brother's name here. And we saw with Cain and Abel, he tried to destroy his brother's name. And here, what is going on with the name? The Hebrew word for name is Shem. That's name. What is your Shem? Which is interesting because one of them's named Shem. He's named name. <laughs> but if you look here at the text, you're going to see that there's it's it's speckled with shen mem, shin mem, shin mem, shin mem. The mem at the end of a word takes a tiny bit different shape. It's a final m, but it's still an m. So you have all these shin mems. Do you, can you see a pattern here? Most people can't see it until I show them a little bit better. Do you see it now? What's happening well, to I the name? <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> Can you see it now? Absolutely, I knew it. So Ham's name is being torn apart in the actual letters of the Hebrew text. 
because his name has been cursed. And so we've kind of had two failed brother incidences here. We've had Cain who slew Abel, then 10 generations later we have Ham being cursed. What follows 10 generations later? Abraham. And if you remember the story of Abraham, Abraham's brother Haran died. And Haran had two daughters, Sarah and Milcah. And Abraham and his brother Nahor marries Sarah and Milcah to raise up the name of their dead brother Haran. They're trying to save his lineage. And remember, Haran also had a son, Lot, and Abraham is going to adopt Lot as well. They're trying to redeem. They're trying to be a kinsman redeemer. In some ways, this is a, a, an early form of a leveret marriage to save kind your brother's name. Of. To save your brother. Yeah, prototype of to save your brother's name. So look at the text in Genesis 11 where it talks about Abraham and Nahor when they took the wives of, of Haran's children. Do you see the shen, the sheen and the mem, sheen and the mem here? And then drawing, drawing it back together, right? right. So they're redeeming their the brother's name. name. They're putting their brother's name back together in the Hebrew text. And that's what the leveret marriage system was intended to do, was to redeem the dead. So what is ten generations after Abraham? Boaz. Mm. Under the tenth generation. Under the tenth generation, we have Boaz. And in this case, we have a story where Boaz actually does the Leveret law. He redeems Elimelech's name, his land through Naomi, and the redemption of Ruth, which actually saves a whole genealogy. When they bless Ruth. Which is the genealogy that, that came down through. Through Christ. Lot, too. Oh, yeah. And, and, and yeah. The, um, the Moabites, um, let's see. Um, oh, I'm trying to remember which one's a Moabite. Oh, well, Ruth is a Moabite. That's what I say. <laughs> Rahab was a Canaanite. Okay, I thought too hard on that. <laughs> Good point. Good point. <laughs> Come straight down. And so we're redeeming a lot of things here in the selflessness of Ruth and, and in her full commitment to be a proxy deliverer, not just for Naomi, but for Elimelech and for all of the family tree. And she will be the mother in of essence, she's participating in Boaz's redemption of her yeah. family lineage by following him. Yes, so in a way. She's a redeemer with a little r as well. And so this is the pattern that we see with the ten generations. We see that Heavenly Father gives us light and truth and that we are supposed to take that light and truth and redeem our brother. We're supposed to save him. And if we do that and we give glory to God, then we're building up his name in the land. Which is essence. In essence, the whole role of the 144,000. And proxy delivers in yeah. all of the covenants. Exactly. Go out and save. <laughs> and we're going to see that in the Davidic covenant <laughs> as well. Right. And it's all pictured right here in these ten generations. But what happens sometimes is we think, well, because we have light and we're God's people, that makes us important. 
And all of a sudden we start to try and build up our own name instead of God's name, like Ham. And any time we do that and we take glory to ourselves and we don't take the light that God has given it to us and share it well, and build up our brother. It's counterintuitive to, the, to what you would think, but in essence you are building your own name to join with him. Oh, yeah. Then, then Instead everybody's of to try to do up, it right? solo, yeah. to become part of. All right. So this was done by one of my students in one of my classes. She went through and took the generations from Perez, who was Tamara's son. And you remember, if you go back to our lesson on Genesis 38, we showed you how the names of Ruth, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and David are all embedded in Genesis 38 in 49 letter intervals. Which is absolutely impossible to yeah, it's, it's this fingerprint of God thing it's, yeah. going on. And of course, Tamar's son is Pharaoh. And then from Pharaoh, Pharaoh means breaking forth because he was a twin, and you can go back and read that story. Hezron, the next one, his name means village in Hebrew. Ram means to raise up. Aminadab means my people of liberty. If you want to read them all, pause your video. But for the sake of time, we're just going to put all the names together and read them together. And it says, a people breaking forth to build a city. God raises up a people of liberty who learn by experience. He endows clothes them with power, and when they, with their Redeemer and His servants, stand, they become beloved. That's beautiful. That just blow you away. I couldn't believe that when she showed it to me. All right, so just some things, some takeaways. Some takeaways from the story of Ruth. And don't panic. We're going to cover some really cool things about the story of Hannah in, in the next lesson when we work on the book of 1 Samuel. We, we touched on it just a little bit. She's going to be the amazing mother of the last judge, the prophet Samuel. And we'll, we'll talk about him a lot more in the next class. But back on the, on the things that we've taken away from the book of Ruth, one thing is that Boaz purchases the land and raises up the name of Elimelech, which means, my God is my king. That is Israel. In Isaiah 19, the Lord says, And I will redeem my people in the end. And those people are Assyria, the work of my hands, the bad guy and the good guy in the end. Israel, mine inheritance, the land. And Egypt, my people. That's the Sinai covenant. That's Ruth. Boaz purchases Ruth as his bride, that the name of the dead be not cut off. The law, the nearer kinsman, could redeem the land through the Jubilee Law of Redemption, but the law could never redeem the bride. That was a willing sacrifice and a price he paid for her. So in order to bring Ruth to Naomi, Naomi had to be exiled from her land. That's Romans 11. Blindness has happened in part to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles. But how much greater will it be when Israel comes home? What the law could not do, grace could. Ruth does not replace Naomi. 
Ruth learns of Boaz's ways through Naomi. Naomi, that's 2 Nephi 25, right there. Naomi meets Boaz through Ruth. That's Is everybody huge. making these substitutions Naomi, here? Naomi, Israel, Israel meets, meets Jesus Christ. Christ. Through the Gentiles. Through the kings and queens of the Gentiles. I'm just trying to make sure you're making all those connections. No matter how much Boaz loved Ruth, he had to await her faith, her move. Meaning we have to. Naomi raises the prophetic child. That's interesting when you go to Revelation 12. Boaz, not Ruth, confronts the nearer kinsmen. In the, the law of Moses, when, uh, when someone didn't do his lever at duty and, and he took the shoe, she actually not only took his shoe, but she spit in his face because he had, he had not he had rejected the responsibility of caring for her. And so, but you notice that in the story of Ruth, Ruth doesn't have to confront the nearer kinsmen. Boaz does. I've always played with that idea that the nearer kinsman is, um, be, to the Gentiles anyway. Satan being accusing us. He's the accuser. Yeah, he's, because he's the one that. And, and what is he claiming? We have broken the rules. He and what is he? Yeah, he doesn't accuse us by saying, "Oh, I don't like those guys." He says, "They are guilty." Yep, they are guilty. Right, and we are. Exactly. Without why we the need a redeemer. <laughs> in chapter one, Ruth does not even know that Boaz exists, but in chapter two, Ruth is a poor laborer gleaning in the field with Boaz and receiving his gifts. Time of the Gentiles. Boaz is only a mighty man of wealth who shows kindness to her. But in chapter three, in the end time, Ruth is at the feet of Boaz. At the end of the wheat. So, the beauty of that is, we win. He wins, and we win with, with him. him. <laughs> I like that. I like that approach. So, thank you very much. Oh my gosh, so many beautiful, beautiful things hidden in the scriptures. I pray that it's a blessing to you. I pray that you will go out and bless your brother. And uh, maybe now you'll love the book of Ruth as much as I do. Thank you. And until next time.